Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. The long battle to save the Hartford Whalers in Major League Sports in Connecticut is over tonight. As today, the Whalers announced officially that they will move at the end of this season after rejecting the state's offer to build a new arena. Now, we have team coverage tonight. First Channel 3's Dennis House is joining us with how an end of an era came to be. This has been in the works for a long time. The long-term future of the Whalers has been in doubt for years, and in recent weeks, fans, merchants, and others who simply enjoy living in a place with the prestige that a pro team brings were hoping something could be worked out to keep the team here. But by midday, their hopes were dashed. It was official. Connecticut's only Major League sports team is leaving. Is this a setback for the, for the city of Hartford? Of course it is. Governor Rowland delivered the bad news that the Whalers would not accept the state's final offer. That offer was to build a $147.5 million state-of-the-art arena downtown. But the Whalers wanted more. Number one, the Whalers would not agree to a long-term lease. Rent-free, $147 million facility, pay all the costs for the next three years, and no surcharges or taxes on tickets or suites. In addition to that, they wanted uh, the suites, the luxury suites, to all have been sold and committed to by May 1st, and that season tickets would reach 13,000 uh, by May 1st. The governor said it was impossible. Whalers owner Peter Carmano said it was necessary to offset $45 million in losses the team would suffer while waiting for the arena to be built and said there was only one way to save the whale. Well, if the state of Connecticut uh, uh, was willing to spend taxpayer money to uh, subsidize the team, uh, yeah, of course we could have stayed. But the governor said the deal was the best the state could offer. Carmano said to accept it would have been a, quote, reckless business decision for a team that has lost money every year he's owned it. To our loyal fans and to the corporate community who worked so very hard on this, we want to say how deeply sorry we are that things are working out this way. We wish it could be otherwise. But some are wondering if Carmanos, who lives in Michigan, was ever sincere when he said he wanted the team to stay in Hartford. Every time the, the state responded uh, to, the, to the Whalers, uh, the bar went up and the bar went up and it just seemed like he did not have any intentions. As I read through that stuff today, it just got uh, more ridiculous. Now, the Whalers did have one more year left on their agreement with the state, but both sides agreed the team can leave at the end of this season for a payment to the state of about $20.5 million. Dennis, is there any chance whatsoever, the tiniest of chances, that the Whalers could end up staying? Seems very slim. Carmanos did say if either the state or business leaders came up with a way to get that $45 million, he would consider it. And someone said if uh, he was offered the money that he put into the Whalers so far to sell the team, he said he would. Although later he said selling is not an option, so it doesn't look good. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well now, isn't this a fine kettle of fish? How you doing, everybody? My name's Tim Hanlon, and it's, of course, the podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We like to call it Good Seats Still Available. Welcome to the proceedings. 
Uh, and uh, I think you already know where we're going. Uh, we're going back to a story that continues to intrigue. Uh, we've had a number of conversations with both uh, historians, fans, and even former owners of this still legendary franchise known as the Hartford Whalers. They were also known as the New England Whalers in the WHA days, but uh, now domiciled themselves as the Carolina Hurricanes, and still controversially so, uh, conveniently remembered and not remembered and uh, regaled and uh, forgotten and uh, all kinds of different things in between. But the people of Hartford and the state of Connecticut and, and a lot of New England, uh, it just seems they have not forgotten. Uh, hell, there are license plates and uh, uh, still kind of uh, gatherings and, and whatnot, and and a, a glimmer, a very, very faint glimmer of hope still that maybe perhaps someday uh, the wrong, as most people up there would uh, suggest, of the whalers leaving town might be righted again. Um, and uh, while we can debate the um, the logic of that, in today's modern NHL and modern day sports uh, craziness in terms of the costs and the uh, upkeep and the, the real estate issues and, and big television money and, and you know, uh, competition, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we still have the memories, at least, and uh, they will not go away. Uh, and we are excited to uh, delve even deeper into the story uh, more than we've done before uh, with a whole bunch of new tidbits. A courtesy of our guest this week, Christopher Price, who has the brand new book out called Bleeding Green, A History of the Hartford Whalers. Probably the uh, uh, most straightforward and, um, I think, uh, factual sort of presentation uh, of what was this Hartford Whalers story. Yes, it uh, it started as <clears throat> part of the WHA and the New England Whalers and Howard Baldwin and uh, the craziness of that league and Dennis Murphy and sticking it to the man and Bobby Hull and all that kind of stuff. And the merger, don't call it a merger, call it an expansion, whatever, uh, into the NHL. Missions uh, accomplished, I don't know. Um, but uh, in many uh, respects, uh, uh, a winding, twisting, and, and never dull history uh, of this team known as the Hartford Whalers. The um, the, uh, the little clip that you heard at the beginning comes uh, from – uh, the actual broadcast in March of 1997, this was literally the evening that it was uh, announced and uh, generally and mostly understood that the Whalers were officially going to be leaving town, Hartford. Uh, that was on WFSB-TV in Hartford, uh, the now uh, gray television-owned CBS TV affiliate up there. Uh, and the uh, reporting skills of Dennis House, uh, who is now at WTNH. In New Haven, Hartford, which is the next star station up in that market, I think it's an ABC affiliate, if I'm not mistaken, and that's kind of how it uh, how it happened. As uh, you might have been watching television that evening, um, and uh, it, it was sad ending, of course, um, but you know the memories are very real and and raw still. Uh, Christopher Price will tell us his personal. Uh, adjacency to the story and not, not unlike a lot of folks there grew up with the team, uh, you know, uh, inklings of, of what it was in the WHA, certainly uh, very pronounced in the NHL days, even though uh, the Hartford version did not do nearly as well on the ice. Um, 
as they did in the WHA. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's still it, it lasts today. Uh, you will see it uh, in various things. And look, as we've talked about before, um, that logo uh, is perhaps still, I think, of all the teams in the NHL, I think it outsells a few of the current ones in terms of merch and, and uh, merchandise and, and garb and anything with that logo on it. Um, it tells you the power not only of that franchise and the memories of it, but even that logo as well. Um, and we even get into uh, the development of of that as well uh, with uh, our conversation with Christopher Price. Um, we talk about uh, that logo. Peter Good, still with us, uh, then at uh, part of the Jack Lardis uh, Associates Advertising Agency uh, back in uh, 79 of uh, in May of 79, uh, was charged with uh, creating a new logo out of the New, new England Whalers. Uh, having been officially domiciled in Hartford, uh, and it's it's iconic, uh, and um, it, it continues to sell. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you can even go to, um, I guess you could call it the official website, uh, and actually buy uh, merchandise that will actually benefit uh, the actual creator of that logo. Um, if you go to store.cummings, C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S, dash good g-o-o-d dot com that's store.cummings dash good dot com that is literally the official place where you can get even a, a signed copy a, an actual personally signed copy of uh either shirts or these gorgeous prints of the whaler's logo by the by the gentleman who created it in the first place peter good um, but that's just uh, a, 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 it's not even a digression. Uh, it, it's it's essential to this story because the whalers just continue to amaze, confound and outsell, depending on who you're talking to, uh, so much of what's going on there in, in hockey merchandise. And that says something. It says a whole lot of something, even though the franchise has been gone for a couple of decades now. But um, that's what we're here uh, to do on this show on a regular basis. And this week. Our specific focus, our guest, Christopher Price. We're going to talk about Bleeding Green and the story of the Hartford Whalers in a uh, few moments' time. Stick around. It's fun, and you're going to learn a few other new tidbits about the Hartford Whalers that you never did before. And uh, again, it's going to expand our collective knowledge, and um, you will enjoy it. All right, we're going to dispense with a, a, a crass promotional message this week, and we're going to give away a copy of this book. We like to do that on occasion where we can, where the publishers and uh, the authors are uh, kind enough to allow us to do this. It's uh, Bleeding Green is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press, uh, a, a, a tremendous sports library that uh, we've been very excited and pleased to uh, help uh, build out with uh, various episodes and and, uh, and uh, publicity for et cetera and stuff. And this is no exception. Uh, again, the book is called Bleeding Green. Of course, you can buy it wherever good books are found. Uh, it's available now. You can go on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode 280, and there'll be a convenient link to Amazon. You can get it whatever form you want that way. But if you'd like to win yourself a uh, a free copy of this uh, book, I'm holding it in my hot little hands. Uh, it's hardcover. It's a gorgeous uh, cover. And yes, it it has a, um, uh, a, a real uh, uh, strong... Uh, component of the, uh, the the Whalers logo as part of its uh, cover and its coloring. Uh, if you can uh, be the fastest finger first, this is how we do it on this uh, little show. 
Uh, if you can be the first person to email us at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com, that's our email, uh, with the answer, the correct answer to this question, uh, the first one with the correct answer to this question that we get an email from, we'll receive a free copy of the book. And you know, we'll just get your address and stuff, and we'll ship it away, and you have it in a couple of days. It's as simple as that. But the question is not. Here it is. We all know that four teams uh, were absorbed into, expanded into, merged into, whoever you talk to, the NHL from the World Hockey Association in 1979. The Hartford Whalers, of course, and three Canadian teams, the Edmonton Oilers, the Winnipeg Jets, and the Quebec Nordiques. Remember them. Can you tell me the two remaining World Hockey Association teams that did not get tapped on the shoulder and brought into the NHL? There were two other franchises in the World Hockey Association at the time the merger slash expansion, whatever, was announced between the NHL and the WHA. Edmonton, Winnipeg, Quebec, and Hartford were in. Who were the two that were not in? I need their full names. I need the city and their franchise name. Again, the first one with the correct answer to that question, who can send uh, me an email that says uh, the answers to those questions, that question, at uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com, will receive a free copy of Christopher's book, Bleeding Green. All right. It's pretty simple, right? All right. There you go. Go go to it and... Um, as you're listening, uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, perhaps discern the answer to that. And uh, good luck to all of you. And uh, if you don't win, just, just go buy a copy of the book, will you? You're going to love it. And hopefully you're going to love the conversation. So here it comes. Uh, we welcome to our microphones Christopher Price. He of the Boston Globe and lots of other uh, great journalistic uh, posts uh, in the realm of sports. And uh, let's talk about the Hartford Whalers once again. But let's go deeper, deeper than we've ever gone before. Here's our conversation we had just two weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. It seems in many respects, I guess, to people who have been paying attention, that the Hartford Whaler story has been, is not necessarily hidden, right? A lot of people continue to kind of pick at it and keep it alive and, and various permutations of it. Um, what's your adjunct to the story and, and what do you think you're bringing to the table that's uh, anew to it? One of the great things for me is as a working journalist for 20 plus years, I had to be very objective and very straight down the middle and very, you know, look at both sides and kind of weigh the pros and cons of each situation. This is straight up for me, a passion project. You know, I, I don't have to be, you know, kind of a, I don't have to take a measured approach to it because I grew up in Connecticut. I grew up with a team. Uh, I, I was there when, you know, in Connecticut, when the building fell, in 1978, I was there when the merger went through, you know, a year plus later, uh, I, I was there the night that they clinched the, you know, their only Adams division title. And so I, I lived a lot of this stuff as a kid during the formative years of my sports fandom, for lack of a better term, if that's a, even a word. Um, so it, it meant a lot to me and the team left its imprint on me and I grew up to be a sports writer and the idea of telling the whaler's story seemed like a natural progression for me. Uh, my first book, this is my sixth book, but my first book um, 
I had a real personal connection to because I, I also spent some time on Cape Cod growing up and I wrote a book about the history of the Cape Cod Baseball League. And that Which, was, by the way, parenthetically, I actually got to experience it the first time this very summer, just a few months ago. It. Isn't it? It's, it's the best. It's it's a Norman Rockwell painting come to life. It, it really, really is. I, I love the Cape League so much. But but that was that was a very personal project for me. And I've written a few other books over the course of my life. And, you know, they've been great. And I've had a lot of fun and you know, they've all meant a lot. But but this one on the Whalers is as close for me, as that first one was in the Cape League, because it was so personal in such an important part of my life as a kid in such a key moment. And the story deserves to be told, I think, in its, you know, entirety. And in, in, I think what I bring to the table specifically is, is a fan's passion, is, as someone who went through it, as someone who remembered, you know, Howard Baldwin and, you know, his ownership and the moving of the team to Hartford. And again, you know, the, the building collapse and the move to the NHL and the, you know, the, the great times of the 1980s and the not so great times of the 1990s. So I was there. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I kind of lived it. I was one of those kids who bought $10 tickets and ate at Wendy's in the, in the mall before the game, ate chilies at Wendy's in the mall before the game and sat in the nosebleed seats and, you know, cheered my heroes. Well, all right, but th that sounds like the very antithesis of being straightforward and objective. Though, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that what, that's what was great for me. I was finally unleashed, you know, for, for lack of a better term. It, it, was, it was an opportunity for me just to view it as a fan, to view it as, you know, something that meant more to me than my daily writing. And it was a great exercise for me as a journalist and as an author to be able to kind of you know, tell a little bit of my story within the pages of this book and, and how I, you know, kind of came to be a, a sports fan. So I think that my own experience kind of helped inform the book and my own experience as a fan, my own experience as a, you know, as a, as someone who lived and died with the Whalers and Chuck Caton and Gordy Howe and Mark Howe and Ron Francis and Kevin Dineen and all the rest. I, I think that's what really, really kind of bring something new to the table here when you're talking about this. All right. So, so take us back then to your first encounter with this team. How old were you? What was the situation? How did you get uh, uh, to the stadium? Uh, what do you remember and what were you thinking you were going to sort of experience the first time you went or was it under duress or you were blindfolded and spun around and not knowing <laughs> where you were. Can you give us some sense of how your sort of first entree into this team was when and, and when I my first Whalers game was after they had moved to the Springfield Civic Center after the the collapse of the roof at the Hartford Civic Center uh, I had been to the for, old for our audience that year was what roughly when that was in 78 Got and it. so I went up to the Springfield Civic Center with a, a, a kind of a Boy Scout troop. And I'd followed the team before that. I was nine years old. And so it's not like I'm going to games by myself at that point. But I, I was able to watch them on TV. And being able to go to a game at the Springfield Civic Center was an awful lot of fun. To be able to see my guys in person, it was great. And I was hooked by the live hockey experience. You guys know that. Hockey live is much better than hockey on television to be able to go to a game, to be able to experience the sound. And it, it's just a different experience for a sports fan. And so I was able to go to that game. Uh, they played, I think it was Cincinnati. This was before the merger. So I believe it was at the Hartford Civic Center because it was a mall, because it was 
uh, you know, relatively safe environment, as safe as you're going to be in a, you know, in a, in a big city downtown. And so, you know, we would be able to go to that. And then, you know, my mom basically, I remember my mom dropping us off and saying, okay, I'm going to pick you up here at 10 o'clock and that being okay. And part of that's just kind of, you know, part of the times, but being able to do that in Hartford, I think was very, very unique because it was very much of a family friendly environment and it was safe for a kid and his friends, you know, relatively young kid and his friends to go to a game in the big city. Okay, so this is then near the end of their WHA life, mm -hmm. right? So um, how are you uh, interpreting this team, which you've essentially been following and now for the first time see, albeit in the temporariness of the Springfield Civic Center? Um, what is your understanding of this World Hockey Association and – as a fan, I guess, both, you know, following as well as now in person, what is your, also your understanding of what this WHA is going to become or it's, it's shakiness and or NHL type experience to come? How much of that are you conscious of, not conscious of? You just didn't care. This is like hockey in person and boy, I'm interested. Yeah, it was professional sports in Connecticut. You know, th this was before... UConn basketball became the all-consuming monolith that it is now. This was the only relatively, and I'll put up my quote fingers here when I say this, it was the only relatively big-time sports that we had in the state of Connecticut. And so it was easy to latch onto that for a couple of reasons, not the least of which they were ours. And when I say that, I mean that you know, when you grew up in Connecticut, you were forced to choose sides. You were forced to choose Connecticut, you know, you're forced to choose Boston the Red Sox, the Bruins, the Celtics, or New York, which meant, you know, the Rangers, the Yankees, the Mets, the Net, what, you know, whatever. This was the first professional sports team that was ours. This was the first professional sports team that I felt a connection to. And so that meant something to me. That, that, was, that sense of possession was very, very big for a young man who was a sports fan growing up in Connecticut at the time. I didn't have to choose. I didn't have to choose between Boston in New York. I didn't have to choose between the Bruins or the Rangers. I had my own team. It's also important to remember, too, that that was a different era where renegade leagues were relatively common, that it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's just, you know, there's just the NHL and there's the NBA. You know, we had the ABA. Um, you know, you had the WHA, you had the, you know, you, you had alternatives, you had, you know, that was only a handful of years after the AFL NFL merger. And so I looked at it as well, this is just what happens when competing sports leagues, you know, re reach a point of, of, I don't want to say no return, but it's it, it This is what happens when leagues you know, compete against each other. Eventually they find some sort of common ground and there's a merger. And so I, I looked at it as, okay, well, that's, you know, that's what's happening here. The, you know, the WHA, these teams, you know, the Whalers and, the, you know, the Oilers and the rest of them are kind of graduating to the NHL. And so I didn't see it as a seismic event. And maybe that was just me as a, as a 10 year old kid, but I thought that that's what teams do and leagues do at that point, you know, teams merge, leagues merge and, you know, there's an evolutionary process and this is just part of it. 
What was the experience of the game? Like, did you, was it faster than you were imagining? Was it more colorful because you were actually oh, yeah. seeing it for the first time? Like, uh, yeah. where were you sitting? Like, uh, what, what in particular, like maybe tangibly and sense wise, uh, kind of most hooked you, so to speak? The noise, just the noise and the, the action and the speed of the game. And they allowed you to fight. And there was, it was a little bit unruly and it was a little bit wild and guys weren't wearing helmets. And it was just unlike any other sport. You know, you get down to the basics of hockey, the fundamentals of hockey. It's, it's unlike any other sport because there's a, a certain level of connection, you know, because guys back then weren't wearing helmets. So you could see their faces and there's a certain level of, I don't want to say violence, but, you know, physicality in the game that you don't necessarily see when you're watching a baseball game. And so that was, that was unique to me as kind of a rough and tumble 10, 11, 12 year old kid. And so that was the thing. And again, live hockey is so much different than it is on television. And so being able to go to games like that, to be able to experience that, I, I you know, for me, it was a lot of fun and, and I was hooked in that moment because I was able to, like I said, there was a possession of that team they were connecticut's team they were our team they were something to be proud of uh and and the fact that they were they were competitive at that stretch you know through the tail end of the the wha days and the nhl days they were a competitive team they you know they they had right up until the vegas golden knights a few years ago they had the best first season of any expansion team in the national hockey league and and so you know you would be able to see this team and you know, you, you eventually, as you got older, you recognize that's Gordie Howe. That's Mr. Hockey. That's the most important guy in the history of the sport out there playing for the Whalers alongside his two sons. You had Dave Keon out there, who I think gets kind of the short end of the stick when you talk about, you know, Hartford hockey history. But, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. You had um, Bobby Hall, you know, with the Whalers at the tail end of his career. So you had those three guys out there. You had Mark Howe, who was going to be a Hall of Famer. Again, you had a lot of really good talented players on that team and so that was the you know the the tail end of the question for me the tail end, you know last part of my answer here is that they were a good team they were a competitive team and they hooked you in and they were exciting and they were fun to watch so those are you know all of those things combined for me made it a real attraction yeah look i think um uh having grown up in the northern new jersey area metropolitan new york right at uh you know, this is also talks about sort of how uh, media and the media markets are sort of portion, uh, portioned, uh, apportioned, partitioned, I, some combination of those words. Uh, sorry, it's still kind of early for me today. Um, uh, and obviously how teams get domiciled, right, even back then in the, the 70s and the 80s, right, television matters. And, and you know, I was looking at TV Guide as a kid, you know, W, uh, which is HFB, I guess, maybe was the TV station. Up there in Hartford or FSB. Yeah. WSSB. FSB, thank you. Yeah, FSB. Channel three. Uh, so, you know, that always an interesting sort of outlier on one's uh, television program grid in the New York area. But it, it does speak to, I mean, Connecticut's own team. I mean, that's you have to underline that phrase because, you know, when it comes to baseball. Right. The territory is either you're a Yan Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan. I mean, Mets, you know, it's, it's kind of a different dynamic. So I'll throw them out for a second. Um you know, same in basketball, right? I mean, New York's got two basically teams, right? Maybe one and a half at the time, right? The Knicks and the Nets, whatever the Nets were, wherever they were. Uh, and the Celtics, you got to have to choose one, right? Maybe a little bit of encroachment with um, with football because, New, you know, New England mm -hmm. obviously descended a little bit further south uh, by design, right? But, but make no mistake, hockey, this was literally carving out 
and maybe to the consternation of the Bruins and the two going on three teams in the New York metropolitan area. Right. Um, You know, it's um, it's very telling. And you can imagine uh, if you're not from the area, just how that truly makes an imprint, especially if you're in the area. This is truly your team. Yeah, it it really is. And, And again, for me, that's a big part of it. That was a big part of it, that, that these guys were my guys. You know, you could live in Boston and you could root for those great Bruins teams in the early 1970s. You could live in New York and root for those great Rangers teams or, you know, and the, the Islanders teams in, in the late 80s. But the, these were our guys. And there was this, a real sense, even early on, Tim, there was a real sense of community with this team. I, I know Howard Baldwin has said on a number of occasions that, that they were like the Green Bay Packers of hockey. And I think that's a bit of a stretch. But at the same time, these were guys who were in your community. And part of that's just hockey culture. Hockey guys are just generally a little bit more low key and a little bit more community minded in my experience, having covered sports for 20 plus years. But there was also a sense of they were part of the Hartford community. They were part of, uh, they were part of us. One of my favorite stories in the book was when the building collapsed, they would commute back and forth to practice in Springfield. And they found a Wendy's on I-91 going back and forth. And after practice, they would stop at Wendy's and get, you know, they would get lunch and you would be sitting in Wendy's and with their frosty and see Gordy Howe and Jordy Douglas and the rest of the whalers come marching into Wendy's. And so It's a relatively small thing at the time, but I think that that illustrates the connection between the team and the town and the fans that existed that you didn't necessarily get if you're a fan of the Rangers in New York or a fan of the Blackhawks in Chicago or the Kings in Los Angeles, that this team was a sizable part of the community and they saw you as a, a, a key part of the process. You as a fan as a key part of the process. Tell me about your memories of, and then your, your uh, rear view mirror reporting of this transition from the WHA to the NHL, right? There was those last two seasons uh, in Hartford as a WHA franchise that they went to the finals that second to last year. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously you had, uh, the Howes, right? Uh, uh, Gordy plus the sons, right? Who came over mm-hmm. from Houston uh, in 78 and, and, and a little bit in 79. Um, but what was your, what was your, I guess your, what is the parallel story, your recollection, and then maybe some of your filling in the blanks, I guess, objectively about what this transition was going to be and frankly, what it became, because I got to think as a fan, there's a little bit of trepidation, uh, maybe, maybe, relief right that you're one of the four teams that are going to get quote unquote absorbed but you know also probably some some fear that you know well hey we're going to go to the lions now because the you know the big bad nhl is going to eat us all up i think it was between relief and excitement when you know at least those the memories that i have where they were the top they were one of the top four teams and so they were able to be absorbed by the nhl i do remember the bruins not being especially happy about it because they had a rather contentious relationship with the Bruins when they were in the, when they were in the WHA. And that dates back to the early years when they had to share dates at the garden. And there was an enmity that kind of bubbled up between the two franchises. And then they eventually moved to Hartford, but the the Bruins never really forgave them for a lot of the stuff that happened there. So I, I remember there was that level of excitement again, you know, big time sports, 
was coming to what was coming to Hartford. And, and this was a time where, you know, this, this was not too far removed from the original six era. And, and so the idea of a hockey team expanding, you know, a professional hockey team, an NHL team, imagine that in your, in your state, in your city, you had big time sports coming to town. And so that level of excitement, that level of passion that was there for their WHA days, again, when they were really, as you mentioned, you know, they went to the AFCO Cup finals. They were one of the more competitive teams. They were one of the only teams that did not move. They did not have any sort of substantial unrest over the course of their time in the WHA. They were stable. So we really didn't get exposed to a lot of those wild WHA stories of, you know, guys not getting paid and teams folding in the middle of the year and kind of moving on. And so, there was already a sense of stability around the franchise, but ultimately, like I said, there was a level of relief that they were one of the top four teams that were going to be moving on. And there was a level of excitement that look, you know, they were going to get a chance. We as Hartford, you know, we as Connecticut, we as Hartford, we're all collectively moving into a new era of big time professional sports. The WHA was great. Sure. But this is the NHL. This is the national hockey league. This is the, you know, these are the Canadians and the Bruins and the Maple Leafs. And, you know, this is an august group that we're joining here as fans. And so we have to comport ourselves accordingly. But again, the level of excitement that was there amongst the fan base, I think, was really something memorable. Yeah, look, and I think uh, and we've we've learned on on many, many different occasions, right, sort of especially in this era, right, where uh having a professional team in a in a top four at the time league right is almost um uh, uh parallel or commensurate or 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 um worthy shall we say of, of being uh deemed a quote-unquote major league city right there's a mm-hmm. civic component to that too right so you're in literally now the best if there was any any question around, you know, the WHA and its sort of level of professionalism and all that, right? There's no question now because you're in the top tier of of hockey, uh, the best league in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, in in the WHA was moving in that direction. And and I think that, you know, not to cast too wide a net here, but the, the signing of Bobby Hall, I think, helped legitimize the WHA in the eyes of a lot of hockey traditionalists, but it never quite got there. There was still very much of a sense from many NHL owners that, look, that's not real hockey. That's not, you know, that's not really the sport that we want to promote. But, you know, you start to see toward the end of the WHA, those those great Edmonton teams start to come on. You know, guys like Gretzky, you had a fantastic Winnipeg team. I will go to my grave swearing that if the Winnipeg team that we saw in the final days of the WHA was allowed to come into the NHL, Un, unbroken, preserved. They could have put together one of the truly great teams. It, you know, they could have been just as good, I think, in a lot of ways as that Edmonton team. Um, but they were kind of picked over a little bit, and that was part of the move into the NHL. That you know, that you you, you had to give up a few players, and there there were some compromises made when it came to personnel. But yeah, that this is this is big time professional sports. This is what Hartford had always wanted. They tried to get a basketball team for a while, an ABA team. That really didn't work. They had, you know, semi-pro football teams for a while. 
you know, the you know, Red Sox minor league team was located right outside of right outside of the town. So hey, don't forget the Hartford Bicentennials of the North American Soccer League. Exactly. And I also grew up about that time as a as a fan of the Hartford Hellions of the major indoor soccer league. That was well. my next one. Yes, there of you course. go. There you go. But this was this was one of the big four. They were coming to town. Everyone was excited. You know, it was a very, very exciting moment. And it's interesting going back to him and looking at some of the clippings from that era. And there was clearly very much of a sense of civic pride across the board that included journalism, that included columnists, that included reporters, all saying, yeah, this is Hartford's time. Let's show people what kind of, you know, what kind of city we can be. Let's show people that we can be a big time professional sports town. We have the venue, we have the team. And so there was a real level of excitement across the board when you're talking about uh, a big time team, an NHL team coming to town. All right, what's this? Prize picks. My goodness, of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks. What is it? Well, I just literally it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or frankly, across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, they're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, how about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, in basketball, that could be three-point uh, shot attempts made, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes and you can choose and mix and match sports as well you don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport no you can pick a couple of players in across different sports and boy oh boy when i say different sports prize picks has a wide variety it's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the nfl and major league baseball all the way into various niche sports 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 no sports like mma or disc golf uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, try them out. It's really easy and it's a hell of a lot of fun. And you can win big bucks too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome, and it's uh, fun to play for sure, and that really uh, uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And, of course, we've got a promo for you as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device or go to prizepicks.com. That's P-R-I-Z-E-P-I-C-K-S.com and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the prize picks app and get that instant deposit match 
right up to 100 bucks. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, Prize Picks. And now back to our conversation. Tell me about your uh, the, the uh, your recollections of and your further investigative uh, work on uh, the man, the myth, and and the semi legend Howard Baldwin, right? Because he this was a guy who we've had on the show a couple of times. Um, you know, is is almost sort of a, a force of nature, I guess. Uh, and <laughs> if anybody is synonymous with the ups and downs and sidewayses sidewayses of this franchise's history, it's him. Uh, is he looked upon as a a hero, as a villain, as a savior, as a something in between. Because, um, you know, obviously there were lots of different uh, bumps in the road for this story, for just because the fact that it's a small town market and, and, and now into the big time. But uh, largely, it seems like it's a it's a positive uh, arc. But, you know, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about his role in all of it. I think his legacy is secure, even though there were some questions about his, his attempts when it came to bringing professional hockey back to Hartford a few years ago. Who was the guy in the music man? Was it Harold Hill? <laughs> sure. Yeah. That, six that's trombones who, and a hit parade. Sure. Yeah. That's who he reminded me of uh, a, a little bit. And in multiple people over the course of, you know, writing the book and talking to folks, I, I, I interviewed more than 80 people for the book and multiple people compared Howard to him in the sense where he was just the indigo what's the phrase i'm looking for the absolute power of his personality really helped first of all bring hockey to hartford he was the guy who was unafraid to go anywhere and talk to anyone about this team this franchise and what big time professional sports can do to your city Uh, the the other thing too is that he, in a lot of ways, kept the WHA afloat for for a long, long time. He was the WHA commissioner, and he, by his own admission, was spread a little thin, at a, you know, a, you know, along the way. But you can't write the history of Hartford hockey without putting Howard Baldwin in that first paragraph. He was a guy who, by like I said, through sheer force of will, brought a team to town, was able to be the driving force to get them to become one of the best young teams in the national hockey league. And, you know, by, by the time he left in the, the late 1980s. And again, I think that there's some questions about his departure and his attempts to bring a team back in the 21st century. But I think ultimately his legacy is, is very secure. When you talk about the whalers, he was the guy, you know, he's, you don't have hockey in Hartford without Howard. Well, yeah, and 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 that story, you know, goes all the way back to the very founding of the league itself, right? With uh, our our old and and sadly just uh, recently uh, departed Dennis Murphy, right? When they when the WHA mm-hmm. was set up, I mean, essentially, uh, you know, Baldwin was like kind of uh, kind of there, sort of at the creation, right? And and carving yeah. out that franchise for for the New England area and stuff. So I, you know, I I think so, right? I think very much so. Um, but look, I also think too, you know. Uh, Time moves on, right? And and you know, I, the, it, I I'm sort of going to save this to the end, but I think it's a good time to maybe now bring it up. Is you know the, the idea of Hartford as a market nowadays, right, for the NHL again? I mean, you know, I, some of it seems logical, and and given I think perhaps its unique status as a franchise 
Um, it's probably the most active, inactive franchise there is in pro sports, let alone the NHL, right? Mm -hmm. uh, jerseys and, and the, the license plates and the, the memories continue to linger on. And, and the ire even passed down from generation to generation now of how the Carolina Hurricanes have or have not or have again, you know, embraced the brand. Um, mm -hmm. it, it still continues to irk a whole lot of people in Connecticut, even those who weren't around the time when the, when the original franchise existed. Um, yeah, yeah. So bringing something back or, or even calling, calling back the name or, or the, the women's franchise calling them the way, I mean, I just, it, those things, I think we got to be very careful because the history is there and, and clearly uh, revered, but I, you know, I, you could also be poking a bear by, you know, perhaps trying to reminisce too much and, or try to go back to the future. Yeah, I, I think two things, Tim. I, I'm of two minds here, and, and I'm always constantly battling because, you know, for one thing, it's a naked ca a cash grab on the part of the Hurricanes. I, I, I think it's, it's clear that they saw the popularity of the logo and the brand, and they realized, well, we got to get on that. We got to make that happen. And so, you know, they started wearing the jerseys and having the throwback nights, and I, I completely understand that. You know, but let's, again, let's call it what it is. They're looking to make money they're looking to to capitalize off really one of the most iconic logos in the history of North American professional sports. Uh, the other thing, and I had this conversation for the book with, with Connecticut sports writer, Dama More. He said, look, let's remember the fact that, you know, I, I get all the passion and I, and I get the people being upset about it, but also at the same time, let's, let's remind ourselves why the Washington nationals exist. It's because, you know, at least in some part, that the Texas Rangers and the Minnesota Twins wore the Washington Senators throwbacks. They were able to keep the name, the brand, the tradition alive, at least in some small part, by doing that. And so I do think there is some value in having the Hurricanes continue to embrace it, even if it's just for financial purposes. I don't think, no, I don't want to say I don't think it's ever going to happen again, but I think a lot of things have to happen if the Whalers are going to return to the National Hockey League. I think they need a new building. I don't think the XL Center, as currently constituted, is enough to support a National Hockey League team 41 nights a year you know, on a consistent basis. I know UConn plays you know, some basketball games there. They play some hockey games there, um, but I don't think it's a, quite an, an NHL ready facility. And, and that's, you know, in a league where in Arizona, they're going to be rolling out a 5,000 seat hockey arena. So I, I think that a lot of things have to happen. I, I'm wondering if maybe one of the courses of action is to partner up with one of the, the big casinos in Connecticut, whether it's Foxwood or Mohegan Sun and say, look, you know, build us a 20,000 seat arena in you know, 10, 15 miles outside of town, because, you know, we all know that the San Francisco 49ers don't play in San Francisco. They play, you know, an hour outside of San Francisco. And so you could still call them theoretically the Hartford Whalers if you put them in the wilds of Connecticut, you know, but again, all that stuff has to happen. And I, I think it's a, it, it, it's a long shot, at least at this point. But one thing that I've learned from talking to the people in Seattle who lost the Sonics is look, never stop fighting. Never stop fighting for your franchise. Never stop, never lose that passion. Wear the gear. Keep them in the forefront of the conversation because you never know when a hedge fund billionaire with a few extra bucks is going to be waiting around the corner who grew up as a Whalers fan, who's going to want to do everything he can to get a hockey team back in Connecticut, an NHL team back in Connecticut. So 
I know that's kind of a long winded answer to the question, but I, I think that, you know, you, you keep fighting for me. That's the bottom line. If you're a Whalers fan, you know, there's a reason that the booster club still exists, you know, 25 years after the team moved, there's a reason that, you know, the reason I wrote the book, you know, there's a reason that the logo remains one of the best-selling logos in North American professional sports. There's right. A, oh, it, it, not only that, it, it and and in NHL hockey, it's it is. I think it it uh, is in the top half, if not top quarter, of all brands that sell. Uh, yeah. Let alone the ones that exist today, right? So, yeah. but so okay. So the interesting, so many sort of interesting layers to this, right? So I, I would I you know. We also get very interested in sort of like where the quote unquote official and maybe unofficial sort of history of various teams live. Right. And, and you know, like, for example, in the case of the Minnesota North Stars. Right. That's a fraction, a fractious or fractional uh, family tree, if you will, because they obviously moved to Dallas. Uh, but there are pieces of the Pittsburgh Penguins and then the San Jose Sharks that are sort of part of that 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 legacy. And officially, right, the history goes to Dallas. But. You know, I think the soul of that franchise and, the, and its lingering memories clearly lives on in the Minnesota Wild that, you know, got uh, expanded or moved into there, right, in that, that market. And same, I think, for, you know, a number of other franchises, you know, the ba- Baltimore Colts, you know, uh, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, I, I think there's real debate as to whether the Indianapolis uh, Colts, as the name stood around, but, you know, there's, there's still quite a bit of fandom uh, and memories, I guess, that uh, Baltimore Ravens fans try to inject uh, into keeping that memory alive. I the, the, the problem with this one here is that th- there is no terminus or return, shall we say, right? It, it's gone to Carolina and literally and figuratively that history goes there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also seems to be the most egregious misuse because not only is Carolina different than Connecticut, just in, in, in composition of people and, 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 and dynamic of life and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's, um, it's just feels so incongruous, right? Yeah. Uh, it yeah, just it does. appropriated, if you will, misappropriated. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was tough for, well, I, I'll give you a couple different examples. It, it was difficult to see Ron Francis with the Carolina hurricanes because he was so venerated in new England and, you know, in Hartford when he was with the whalers. And then the other thing too is, Look, if you're going to do this, and Jack Edwards the, of the Bruins, the Bruins broadcast team brought this up. If you're going to wear the gear, if you're going to wear, you know, the, the the Whalers logo, at least have the self-awareness to understand that, look, the Whalers retired a certain amount of numbers. Well, the, the Hurricanes had someone wearing Johnny McKenzie's number. And so the, you know, it, it I guess it just speaks to the, a level of respect that if you're going to do it, do it right. You know, if you're going to do it, if, if you're going to make the connection to the whalers, if you're going to turn this historical, you know, turn this into a historical callback, if you're going to respect the franchise, respect the roots, as you say you're going to do, make sure you do it the right way. And those were a couple of things that, that again, that really just stood out for me when you're talking about Carolina's decision to use this, but yeah, it, it is, it, it's fascinating. I mean, if they do get a team back in Hartford, can you use those records? Can you use that history? You know, is it like, you know, the, the one that comes to mind is the Browns, you know, because obviously the team moved and then they got a new team with new, you know, can you still 
use that historical encyclopedia of, you know, points in a game or, you know, success in a season, whatever the case may be with a new franchise. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 we call that retroactive continuity, right. Or retcon uh, in our yeah. little sort of, and it, um, it's understandable. I think the Winnipeg Jets, right. 2.0. We, we just had uh, Craig mm-hmm. Keelback here on, on the show. He's been great example. Yeah. Great. He's original voice of, of, of the original NHL version of the franchise and actually uh, interestingly made the move for the first dozen or so years as they became the Phoenix Coyotes now Arizona. But, um, but there's a, there's another great example, right? Where officially that history, you know, if you want to truly respect where things that came before you, right. I mean, does it sit with the Coyotes franchise or should it be absorbed and, and washed over, so to speak, or, or, I somehow otherwise overlooked and brought into the new version of the team, which is no, no, no relation whatsoever. I mean, if anything, it's Atlanta and the thrashers. Right. So, yeah. I, and maybe that's semantics, right? I mean, I don't think Minnesota wild uh, fans, you know, really care all that much when there's a, you know, a 30th or a 50th or whatever anniversary reunion memory of the North stars, right? They just think of it. Well, this is hockey in Minnesota and this is the franchise that exists now here. And, and this is a reverential way to remember it. Right. I, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be official and only in Dallas. Right. And maybe it's actually more genuine because it's, it's rooted there. But I, again, this, this case of Hartford, I mean, the only other one I can come up with that might sort of similarly uh, uh, feel not right is, is the Colorado Avalanche just this season, right? With mm-hmm. people wearing Quebec Nordiques jerseys. Um, I'm not from Quebec. I've been there. It's beautiful. Maybe they too could get another franchise, right? If I think if Hartford's in the conversation, Quebec should be too. I exactly. But, yeah. But I don't. I don't. You know, with all due respect, I don't know if I should be uh, 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 warm and fuzzy about people wearing Nordiques jerseys at Avalanche games, or should be saying, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't right either. Not along along with this conversation we're having for this team. Well, I think the NHL is still really wrestling with that. And the best example I'll give you is when Patrick Marlowe broke the games played record, you know, for, for, for most NHL games played in the NHL glossed over the idea of, well, you know, we're not going to count Gordie Howe's WHA numbers. You know, we're not going to count Mark Messier's WHA days, you know? And so that's a question that is still to be answered. I, I, you know, I, I think it goes back to the overall connection with the WHA and, and looking at the WHA as a, as a legitimate, you know, uh, hockey entity. Um, you know, the, the, the games played streak and forgive me, I'm, or I'm, I'm sorry, the consecutive games played streak. And, and I'm forgetting the guy who broke the consecutive games played streak of Doug Jarvis who played for the Whalers. And again, that's a question of WHA versus NHL. So this kind of stuff, I think, has already kind of started to bubble up a little bit. And we may see more of it with teams moving. You know, if we do see the return of the Quebec Nordiques, it's going to be interesting to see how much of you know their history is going to be incorporated in the new franchise. Again, if we see a new Whalers team, it's going to be interesting to see how much of that is going to be able to be pulled forward from the old franchise or whether it's going to be, you know, just they're going to have to start from ground zero. Um, but yeah, that it's, it's going to be a conversation that's going to have to be had, you know, but, but again, you know, the, 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 the Gordie Howe games play the Mark Messier games played. I, I think that's a, as those are those are all parts of the conversation. Is it okay? Is it fair to say that the 
the Whalers fans, both original and generationally passed uh, into, uh, don't really care or have much uh, worry about the Carolina Hurricanes franchise? Or, or is there a, is there a, a component that still follows them and, and believes in sort of their continuous history? Not anymore. I, yeah. I think that existed when you still had guys who were in Hartford who moved to Carolina. I think there was still the personal connection with a lot of them. But yeah, I, I had some think... of the broadcast team actually go along with them too. Right? Yeah, yeah. Chuck Gate, who God bless him, when they won the cup, mentioned you know the the, the Hartford hockey history, you know, a, along with his call. And and so yeah, you know, they did have the broad, they did have you know certain elements of the broadcast crew and. You know, there were guys on that team who won the Stanley Cup as a member of the Carolina Hurricanes who were initially, you know, Hartford Whalers. And so I think there was a personal connection. But I think as a team, as a franchise, I don't think so. There's the the Hartford Whalers Booster Club travels to usually at least one game a year. And it used to be down to Carolina, but now it's usually they'll they'll travel down to New York to you know watch the Devils or the Rangers or whatever the case may be. So I would say that there's really no connection to the team there anymore. Uh, in in your reporting of this book and telling of the history, did you learn anything different than what you thought you did, either through memory or through what you thought the history was beforehand? Like, were there any surprises or maybe even question marks still about certain things that happened? Maybe intrigue around the roof collapse or or, or team memories or or uh, perhaps uh, situations of other of other cities the team might have moved to that people didn't realize that were actually in discussion, those kinds of things. The biggest thing for me that I found was that a lot of people like me were of I, I was I had a similar viewpoint as, as a lot of folks did who were Whalers fans before they were hockey fans. There was an ownership about the team as opposed to the sport. I'm still a hockey fan, but the depth of feeling that I have for the sport does not exist like it did when I had a team when I had a team to call my own, I, I live right outside of Boston and, and obviously I work in sports journalism. So I follow the ups and downs, of the Bruins. And uh, so I'm still connected to the sport, but I'm not connected to the sport in the way that I was when I had an emotional investment in my team. And maybe part of that is just getting older and kind of, you know, with it, seeing things with a different worldview, but at the same time, I find myself not, having the same sort of, uh, again, the, the, the level of personal investment in the NHL that I had when I was younger. So I, I think that was the biggest thing for me. And, and the fact that there were a lot of people out there who felt the same way, that they counted themselves as Whalers fans before they counted themselves as fans of hockey or the NHL. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that, look, they just had a, a really a bad taste in their mouth by the, you know, the way that the team ended up leaving town that, you know, it was a, you know, a bag job between Carmanos and Bettman and they wanted to get the team out of town and they were, you know, they were doing everything they could. I, I talked to guys who were on that last year and they, they weren't sure where they were going. They were having team meetings and Carmanos would stand up and say, all right, we're moving to Columbus. And then two weeks later, he would say, all right, we're moving to Raleigh. And, you know, and, and so there was a great level of uncertainty, but I think ultimately, myself and a surprising amount of people, at least to me, 
really had more loyalty to the team and the brand and the logo and the song and the players inside those jerseys as opposed to the sport as a whole. So who, who do you think was the bad guy or bad guys in, in that, that departure? Was it Carmano? So what, was it Batman? Was it sort of into, I mean, was it a fait accompli? Like the save the whale campaign was just really never going to really move the needle. Was yeah. it, was it just an economic decision that was essentially boardroom made and, and Batman was looking at places like Arizona and the desert Southwest and all that kind of stuff and manifest destiny or. Yeah, it, it was, it was a, I think it was twofold. I, I think that the save the whale campaign was, I think it was a great effort. I think it was an honest effort on the part of a lot of people connected with the franchise to keep the franchise in town, but it was never going to, you know, the end game was never about keeping them in town. Um, because in a lot of ways, the league was looking to expand. Look, and, and I don't blame them. You know, it was the nineties and, you know, there was a lot of, the, you know, there were some untapped markets in the idea of moving the team and growing the game, moving the team South again, Arizona, like you mentioned, you know, Florida, Carolina, trying to find those markets. I, I, I can see it. I can understand why, but look, you know, you can put, the Connecticut politicians, Carmanos and Bettman all together, you know, you can carve up enough of the blame pie there to go around when you're talking about why the Whalers ended up leaving. All right. A couple of other sort of pieces of ephemera here. Um, and I'd love to get your takes on um, the theme song. Uh, also iconic brass bonanza. Um, I think anybody of a certain generation who hears the first I don't know. I can name that tune maybe in four notes, maybe three. <laughs> um, it, it has a life of its own as well. Um, uh, anything uh, personal or um, or otherwise interesting as to 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 that song? I think it's. Um, I mean, it's a it's about as iconic as it is, and, and I also worry about it being misappropriate. But I do know that others like to borrow it, uh, which I think is uh, a great hallmark of this franchise's past. I agree. I do. I, I think that as iconic as the logo is and as memorable and as great as the logo is, there is no more identifiable song, at least when you're talking about a team, than Brass Bonanza. You know, you can argue, what is it, Hail to the Redskins or, you know, the Miami Dolphins number one song or whatever, even, you know, the Red Sox now with Dirty Water. You put that song on anywhere among sports fans and they know instantly what you're talking about. I, I have a couple of great stories about that. I, um, I, I had a story from Kevin Deneen in the process of putting the book together. And he said he was coaching in Switzerland a few years ago and he was on a mountain just in, in this, this remote mountain restaurant, handful of people in the restaurant. And there's a guy across the room who's wearing a whaler sweater and they kind of recognize each other and make eye contact. And it's clear the guy knows who Deneen is and Deneen kind of catches his eye. And afterward they go over and Deneen finds the guy can't speak a lick of English, but he starts humming brass bonanza. And there's that flash of recognition. And Deneen told me, he said, when, you know, you don't need a translator when you got brass bonanza, you know exactly what you're talking about. So um, the other one was Mark Howe told me that he purchased the 45 when he was playing in Hartford and he would play sock hockey with his sons in the, the living room at home. 
And whenever one of them scored, they'd put it on. And he said, you know, it's a great song, but we heard it more at home than we did at the rink because those teams were, those were some, some lean years for Hartford. So I, I, I think it's a great song. I know of people, guys who played there for a handful of years who still have it as their ringtone. Um, it's cheesy as all get out. It, it is, you know, the horns and the, the, the whole bit, but it, it brings you back to a time where hockey was king in Hartford. And I think it's great. I do. I think it's great. And again, like I said, I, I don't think you will find another song that is more identifiable with a franchise than Brass Bonanza. In a, uh, the inimitable Jack Say, Jack Say, I guess. I, it's Jacques Say, but it, I guess he was called Jack Say. And I think nope. the team, I think the song was actually another song. I think it was called Evening Beat. I Evening think. Beat. Yeah. And it was on initially, the backstory there is it was on a B side of um, an, an album that they used to promote the team in back in the 1970s and it had i believe it was this was on the same album it was a, a this legendary fight between the whalers and the, the minnesota fighting saints i'd have to go back and take a look at this it was on the same record but they put it on the b-side and then they found it was a, it was a hit and they started selling it in the whalers gift shop and i you know you everyone every i had the 45 at home i did if, you know if you were a kid if you're a young sports fan and we talk about the connection at the top with the team you could, that was a connector, you know, for people as, as goofy as it sounds to be able to have that 45 at home, like, you know, like Mark House saying, you know, you're playing in the living room and you put it on when you score a goal, quote unquote, you know, it's, it was one of those things that that connected you with the team and connected you with a franchise. Yeah, it's, it's iconic. And I guess it's still played around. So let me ask you then also, um, and I, I, a hint of the, this question earlier, but, um, I guess it's sort of couched into where, so the banners, right? So the championship banners and the retired numbers and stuff, right? That that did not go to Carolina, did it? Or are there replicas no. there? Or has it stayed in Hartford somewhere? It in stayed the- in Hartford. It's, okay. it's, they're still in the rafters of the XL Center, you know, what used to be the Hartford Civic Center. You know, there's they're the retired numbers. There's the 1986-87 Adams Division champion banner. You know, those banners are still in Connecticut. And, and I, the, the attendant question then is, so if, if I truly want to show my love and affection and, um, uh, you know, my, uh, my, my love for this franchise, um, where is the best place for me to place those attentions? Is it in Hartford? Is it in Carolina? Uh, the, you know, wh- where is the, best tribute to this team. I, I think it's a loaded question, but um, you know, it's hard for, for fans generally to kind of, I get, I, here's, here's the other question related to that. Let me get to the point. I'm if I go to a Carolina hurricanes game and I, and I see a Hartford Whalers Jersey for sale, if I buy that there, am I kind of really doing, making a diss, if you will, to the, to the original part of the team? Cause it feels like a little odd that that's the way I would sort of, genuflect uh, uh, appropriately for this for this memory i my feelings on it honestly are do whatever you can to keep the team alive if you're buying a shirt there people are going to see it you know if if you wear it if, if you you know if you if you wear if you buy that shirt at a carolina hurricanes game and go back to chicago 
people who see you wearing that in Chicago are not going to see that you bought it at a Carolina Hurricanes game. So my feeling is, like I said, I'll go back to the quote that I had from Don Memorial, where it's like, the more people see it, talk about it, experience it, if it causes you to go back and look up old games on YouTube or, you know, hop on a Reddit thread about the history of the Whalers, that's great. I think ultimately at the end of the day, that's great. I think the biggest thing that you can do if you want to experience the history of the team and you want to kind of immerse yourself in what hockey really meant in Hartford every summer, the double a team in Hartford, the Hartford yard goats, they have a whalers alumni weekend where they have 20 plus guys come back for the weekend. They sign autographs. They have a dinner. They have a whole thing and you can connect with Marty Howe and Dave Babich and Sean Burke and Dave Diebel and just this long list of guys, Jordy Douglas, Andre Lacroix, this long list of guys spanning from the, you know, the seventies to the nineties. And you can hear the stories and you can talk to the players and you can walk over to the XL center. You can't take a tour in the XL center, but you can experience the city of Hartford and you could understand at least in some small way, the level of passion that people had, because that for me, that's the gathering point. When you talk about the people who come back and who love it, love the team and love the franchise and won't let it die. A lot of booster club members show up that year or show up that weekend. A lot of people come down from, you know, from Boston, from, from, you know, from all points, they come to Hartford. They're able to kind of get a little taste of it every single year God bless them. The Hartford Yard Goats put it all together. And, you know, they still wear blue and green. They see you know, the, the, the Yard Goats wear blue and green. You know, the Hartford Athletic, the soccer team, you know, the semi-pro, not the semi-pro team, but the, you know, the team in Hartford, USL. they wear, yeah. yeah, you know, they, they wear the uniform. They, you know, they, they wear, you know, the blue and green. You can hear Brassmanians at Fenway Park. You can, you know, there's still these areas of day-to-day life where you can kind of see the whalers impact mostly throughout new england but really for me if you want to get a true taste of it go back to the reunion weekend they just started having them they i think they paused it for for covid they had, it started with a fan anniversary they had a yukon's um uh yukon football stadium Rentschler field but they've been able to continue it and that is a great way to be able to get a little taste of what hockey was like in hartford when it was around all right, here's my last piece of ephemera question for you. Um, the logo. Did you get into any of the the the, the background or the design oh, yeah. approach of the yeah. logo in the book? Yeah, the Good Family. Um, it, it's a fantastic story because in this era, as you know, Tim, it, this thing would have been road tested out the wazoo. This thing would have had you know multiple groups of people come in, and they would have had to tweak, and they would have had to say, okay, well, you know, let's add this here, let's take this away, and it would have taken you know months as opposed to days. Um, the, the good family. And let me look up his name. I want to make sure I got it right. I've, I've missed, I've, I've missed, uh, I think it's Peter good. Wasn't it? Yeah. Peter good. I, I, I always, for some reason, I want to say Richard good, but it's Peter good. Um, I should know this on Facebook friends with him. Peter good, uh, sat down with Howard and came up with just a few sketches and Howard, you know, a couple of variations, a couple of different variations. If you Google it, you can, you can Google Peter Good Whaler sketches and you can see some of the different possibilities that they had, but they landed on the one, you know, they basically said, okay, that's it. 
and it really took a relatively short time. And it's, it was fun talking with him about the logo because he's designed stuff 30, 40, 50 years in, in Connecticut as a, as a graphic designer. And sometimes he'll see something on the side of a truck that he designed, or sometimes he'll see something in a, whatever, in a catalog or whatever the case may be. He sees the Whalers logo on a regular basis and it's still indoors. And like I said, for me, and I'm admittedly biased, but it's, it's the most iconic logo in the history of North American professional sports. It's something that you can look at and, you know, it takes time for people to see in hidden space. It takes time for people to see the CBH and the whale's tail and the hockey sticks off that. It is an, it's absolutely genius in, in the sense that it is a relatively simple design, but it's just so perfectly executed. So one of our earlier episodes was uh, with a guy named Whalen Moore, and he is uh, he's still around. He's uh, uh, an artist based in the uh, I think he's in the Savannah, Georgia area. Now, but he was uh, responsible for uh, the uniform design for the uh, Hank Aaron uh, era version of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, he created the uh, Atlanta Chiefs soccer uh, logo, the Cosmos logo of the North American Soccer League. Um, and a bunch of other sort of semi and, and fully iconic logos. My question to him back then was uh, how, you know, number one, are you getting paid for any of this stuff? Of course, the answer is no, because at the time he was working at a design firm or an agency. And I think uh, Peter Good was doing the same thing when this was uh, bandied about. And, 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 and then number two is like, well, OK, if I want to celebrate your work, am I doing you a disservice by buying those things that have your logo on it? And, and maybe you answered the question earlier, but I wonder how these designers feel, how the good family feels uh, about it. I got to think it's a bit, uh, you know, a bit of a, a, a uh, kind of a, a bitter yet, you know, sweet kind of feeling that, you know, okay, the logo lives on yet. I'm not getting any coin from it and people are making money off of it. And it's like, it is. Yeah, it, it is. And it's it, it's an interesting story because it's still kind of playing out. Um, no one is really sure, at least at this point, how much the goods are owed, for lack of a better term, because they, you know, there was there was some talk, well, you know, they signed away the rights and but they didn't sign away the rights. And so so that's really up for debate at this point. And I think one of the things that is part of the conversation right now is the the goods sell a lot of stuff you know out of their own out of their own shop basically with the whalers logo on it and the nhl at least right now doesn't doesn't step in doesn't you know doesn't stop them from doing it and so you could go to their site here and i'll i, I can call it up i'll give them a plug it's store.coming slash good or dash good.com store dot cummings uh, dash good.com and you can go and get what they call the whaler signature series um you know sketches the evolution of the logo uh, you know the logo on a shirt the logo on buttons on stickers whatever the on caps whatever the case may be um in, in the nhl hasn't stopped them as a matter of fact my favorite on this is there's a t-shirt with a whaler's logo that says property of peter good so it's going to be fascinating to see if the whole thing or how the whole thing plays out, I know they've made a couple of legal attempts to reach out to the NHL, but look, if I'm the NHL, I, I, I say, okay, okay, let's, let's, let's divide this up, you know, because 25 years after the team moved 25 years after the logo became 
extinct, for lack of a better term, this thing still sells. It does. It still sells. It still brings in money to the NHL. Part of that, obviously, like we said before, is the fact that the Carolina Hurricanes still use it, you know, and still kind of you know, have started to embrace it. But let's reward the guy who did it. Let's reward the guy who came up with, you know, again, for my money, the most iconic logo in the history of North American professional sports, a logo that still exists today. And I think that goes back to the Batman thing we were talking about before. I, I believe that the NHL was really honestly thought that the whalers were going to disappear when they moved the team, that people were going to forget about them. People weren't going to care. People were going to become emotionally invested in the Carolina hurricanes, but 25 years later, they still resonate with people. People still love them. People still care about the team. When you go out, when you wear a whalers t-shirt or a whalers cap, even here in new England, People will point and say, yeah, you know, it's great. Oh, yeah, the Whalers. And they'll sing the theme song. They'll say, oh, I remember this. And I remember this. And I remember Ron Francis and Kevin Nadine and Mike Liu and those great teams that they had. They still resonate with people. The team still hits that nostalgic sweet spot. And that's a tribute to the people of Connecticut and the hockey, you know, the hockey fans of Hartford who still work to keep them as part of the NHL conversation. And it's a tribute to the logo in the song as well, that it still continues to endure to this day. Yeah. And as the years roll on, it almost, it's, it's just as much, if not more so about the idea of the team, let alone the team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and civic pride, Connecticut, you know, having its own major league franchise, perhaps someday again in a perfect world, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was funny. Was it Steve Russian, the, the great writer yeah, called, Sports called us, yeah, called us, you know, hockey's Miss Havisham's. Where, where it's just, you know, the time has stopped eternally, you know, in, in April of 1997. And we're just hoping that the clocks will start again sometime. I, again, I, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen. I, I would like to hope that, you know, again, some hedge fund billionaire is waiting around the corner saying, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can to buy the Coyotes or the, you know, the, the Dallas Stars or whatever the case may be. Um, and again, a lot has to happen. A lot has to happen to get them to put a team back in Connecticut. But if it doesn't, there's still 25 years of great memories of great players of, of a truly, a truly wonderful hockey history that this team left in Hartford. And it, it just, it continues to, to really hit for people like me, people who grew up on the team, people who grew up on the franchise, people who, who made it matter. And you know, hopefully that's never going to go away. I don't think that part at least will, will ever die. All right. Time to promote, uh, tell us the book, what you're going to be doing about it. Um, how people can best get it versus say other manners of getting the book short of stealing it, uh, et cetera. (laughs) The book is bleeding green history of the Hartford whalers. Um, it's through university of Nebraska press. And right now, as we sit here on Saturday, September 24th, uh, it, the pre-orders have been shipped. And so you are, if you were lucky enough to have a pre-order uh, that you picked up or you, know, you went through Amazon a, you know, a month or two ago, you probably have the book, or at the very least, the book is in transit for you. So um, if you want to order it on Amazon, you can go search for my name, Christopher Price. You can search for Bleeding Green. It's available there. You can go to Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. 
Uh, I'm going to be doing signings in and around the New England area. A lot of them, obviously, in Connecticut, but some in Massachusetts as well. And I'm going to be doing whatever I can do to promote it. And, you know, I, I'm going to be doing my part to try and keep the conversation alive. You know, I, I'm, I, I love to be able to talk to people about the history of the team, the history of the franchise, and to be able to really kind of, you know, get a chance to share a lot of that with people who might not necessarily know about the history of the Whalers. You know, if you're a younger person, if you're a young hockey fan, you don't know about the impact that that team had on that town and that fan base. And so I'm going to do my part, like I said, to try and keep that conversation alive. But the book is available uh, just about everywhere you can buy, you know, books. Uh, the other project for me moving forward is I right now, I'm in the very early talks with a couple of people to do a Whalers documentary. There has never been a full documentary about the history of the team we're looking at a couple of very specific you know touch points in the history of the franchise um but that's the goal for me to be able to take this storytelling arc to a different level and to kind of you know hopefully reveal a few more layers it's a little bit like an onion right and again peeling stuff back and finding out why the team left and who was behind the reasoning and you know hopefully hearing some more of those stories from people sooner rather than later the story continues to uh, intrigue and we continue to also learn more granulars uh, about the story and I'm, and I'm certain that we're going to find out more and more uh, with uh, each and every uh, chance we get to uh, go deeper into this whaler's history and story and it still continues uh, and uh, the best way to continue the dialogue uh, is to run not walk and get yourself a copy of this brand new book by our guest this week christopher price again it's called bleeding green a history of the Hartford Whalers. Uh, it is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. It is about 291 pages of blue and green and white goodness. Uh, you will enjoy it. Uh, my, my goodness, why don't you uh, run out and get yourself a copy uh, if you need a convenient link to do so and give us a couple of shekels of referral love while doing that. We couldn't appreciate that more. All you got to do is go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode, which is numbered 280-280, and you will find a convenient link to this book. And in doing so, by being taken to Amazon for their quick uh, delivery of said product, uh, you'll be giving us a couple of shekels, and I do mean a couple, uh, but it still helps. Every It's, it's our little tip jar. <laughs> it helps keep our lights on. We appreciate that. We'll get that uh, for your uh, convenient uh, linking or clicking over to uh, buying the book that way. We appreciate that. You will also find on that website every stinking episode we've ever done and all the ones to come. Of course, you should be subscribing or following us in your favorite podcast player. We're available where literally wherever podcasts are found. So if you haven't done that yet, what are you waiting for? Um, let's see. While you're on the website, you also find uh, all kinds of other stuff. Including, a, we're building out more merchandise uh, area. We haven't, we're not doing any logoed stuff yet, our own uh, original stuff, but we've got some uh, some great features of some of our best um, uh, sponsors thus far. The first two that are up there are our pals at royalretros.com and oldschoolshirts.com, but more to come there. And again, some referral love there to be had. So if you buy stuff via those links, uh, they will know you came from our site and, and will uh, recompense us with a little bit of a, 
a nod and a wink as well. So we appreciate that too. We're available uh, via email. Just send us an email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Always happy to hear your comments. And of course, as we said earlier in the broadcast, if you missed it, rewind it and, and listen again for that trivia question. That's also the address to send uh, your answer to said trivia question to win a copy of this book. Uh, let's see, what else? Christopher, uh, he, uh, uh, he can be found uh, writing away in the sports section of the Boston Globe. Best way to follow him there is to go to the bostonglobe.com website, bostonglobe.com slash sports. Uh, covers lots of New England stuff, Patriots, etc. And he's also got two podcasts of his own. So uh, give the man some love, why don't you, on the Believe uh, Podcast Network, B-L-E-A-V. That's how they spell that. Uh, and the two podcasts are Patriots Report and, wouldn't you know, the other one is Brass Bonanza. Uh, on Twitter, you can follow Christopher at C Price Globe. At C Price Globe. That's the letter C P R I C E Price Globe G L O B E at C Price Globe. Pretty easy. And again, that uh, website for finding and buying literally original uh, merchandise uh, from the originator of the logo itself. Um, Peter Good, go to this website. It's a little clunky, but write it down, and uh, you can get like a, a, a literally a personalized autographed poster or lithograph of that logo uh, and the history. There's a visual history of how the logo was uh, was uh, envisioned and designed by Peter Good. The website is store s t o r e dot cummings c u m m i n g s dash good g o o d dot com store dot cummings dash good dot com and uh, they'll be glad you did i'm sure um what else we're on uh, social media you can find us on, on twitter at good seat still you'll find us on instagram at good seat still available and of course on facebook as well thank you to jerry payne jerry payne audio excellence as always thank you and um Guess what we're going to send you out with? Of course, any excuse to play this great song by the great Jack Say. Here it is, Brass Bonanza. You know it, you love it, you can't live without it. See you next week, everybody. Take care. Take care.